You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, I want to also say, along with Matt, our downtown worship arts pastor, and Mike, who is our equipping pastor, my name's Eric, and I get to pastor down here as well at this campus, and I want to say good morning. We are so thankful that you are here. Today, it's December, and it quite literally is the most wonderful time of the year. Today, formally and officially, and finally, is the first day of Advent. It's my favorite time of the year. It's my favorite month of the year. It's December. It's the season. And at the same time, I always look at the Advent season, and Advent, for those of you who may not be familiar with that term, simply means the coming of the long-expected Great One. So it's the Advent season, and typically the church, through space and time, across the globe, celebrates the season of the coming of Christ, where the Son of God incarnate comes to us to taste our sadness, as we sang in that song. And so while I love the Advent season, it's also a time where I get a little bit contemplative and philosophical because there's so much else going on in the world that doesn't seem to be very Advent related. There seems to be so much problem and pain and suffering and yes, I'll say it, even evil and wickedness and abuse in the world. So what's actually going on? Well, this Advent season, I'm reminded of all the different sights and sounds that go on during the Advent season. And particularly, I think, my favorite sound of the Advent season in the midst of all that chaos and confusion. No, this is not more cowbell. But my favorite sound of the Advent season is the bell. It's the bell. And there's an old expression that rightly says, you can't unring the bell. Once the bell has been rung, and that is continuing to hurt more and more. Once the bell has been rung, you can't unring the bell. It's Advent. And the bell has been rung. Which reminds me that about 3,500 years ago, a proverbial bell was rung. 1500 BC, there or thereabouts, a man named Moses receives the law. The law of God given at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And that refrain that comes from the law of God, from the Mosaic law, rings like a bell with this never-ending refrain over and over again. We see it articulated most clearly in Leviticus 11 and in Leviticus 19, where God says, You be holy, because I am Yahweh, your God, and I am holy. You be holy. I am Yahweh. I am your God. I am holy. And the bell rings. You be holy because I am Yahweh, your God, and I am holy. And you can't unring the bell. 
seemed like an impossible command, really. God demanded perfection and purity in thought, in word, and in deed. It's impossible, but it's what God deserved, being God, being holy, and it is what he demanded, and it is what he declared. And so for three and a half millennia, people have been trying to, in all different sorts of ways, to unring the bell, to unhear what they have heard, because once it's heard, it gnaws at us. We as a species, the, the human being, we try to drown out that sound. Surely that can't be the expectation placed upon me to be holy because God is holy. Surely that can't be it. I try to drown out that sound. Or maybe I try to convince myself that I never really heard it at all. Or that it can't mean what I thought it meant. Because nobody's going to tell me what to do. And all the more morality that we try to legislate the worse we seemingly get as a species. So what's going on in the world? I want you to begin to increase in your capacity to see the world through God's eyes, that in a very large way, all around the world, here, there, and everywhere, it is people who are trying to unring the bell. The standard that God places on His people, and I mean all people, is holiness. You be holy because I am holy. So... Is it God's proclamation and His demand and His standard that's the problem? Well, that question has challenged theologians and the faithful and believers for centuries. Would God command people to do something that they cannot do? Is that fair? Well, the answer to that question is actually going to be found in this morning's passage. But we have to be reminded that we cannot unring the bell. And God's standard, God's law, is not the problem. Sin is the problem. And that's our big idea for the morning. Sin is the problem. Or let me put the appropriate emphasis on the right syllable. Sin is the problem. Whatever else you think is going on in the world, sin is the problem. Which begs an obvious question to which we'll get at the end. Sin is the problem. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 7. We're going to read this morning. Romans 7. 7 to 12. As you're turning there in your Bibles to Romans 7, 7, I want to remind you that our overarching theme, the thread and the thrust of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's whole point, his whole purpose in writing this is so that we as a people will understand that the righteousness of God, that which God demands, has been given freely to people in the person of Jesus Christ. We've been studying through the book of Romans since August of this year. We've now made it to the middle of Romans chapter 7. Lord willing, next week we will conclude chapter 7 and then we'll break for a few weeks to really celebrate the Advent season. So Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life 
proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and the righteous and good. This is God's word. This is actually a perfect proclamation of the gospel. I want to remind you, if you're visiting with us or if you've been with us for a very long time, of what the gospel is. Our refrain definition that we say all the time. The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. God's command is for us to be holy because he is holy. And Advent is where he himself makes it happen on our behalf. That's very good news. So let's rewind this. We'll try to unpack it. Beginning again in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? So apparently the Apostle Paul, as he writes this letter to the churches in Rome, had been the recipient of a number of accusations where Jewish people and Jewish Christians and very staunch fundamentalist Christians in the churches were accusing Paul of bad-mouthing the law of Moses. They said, this guy is trying to take down Moses. Well, you have to remember, that's a serious accusation. And they would reference passages like Numbers 16, where some of the people of Israel stood against Moses, led by a guy named Korah. And Korah said, hey, Moses, I don't think you're right. I want to be the one in charge. And so, you know, God killed everybody. That was a weird day. The ground opened up and everybody who rebelled against Moses was swallowed up and they died and their families and their livestock and the butterflies and the chimp. Everybody died who opposed Moses. And so the accusation was, hey, Paul, are you trying to say that Moses or the law that God gave Moses is actually sin, that it's the instrument of evil? See, the Jewish people and even Jewish Christians in that day really believed that there was sort of the big four of Judaism. You dare not, dare not, ever speak against God, the law, Moses, or the temple. Which you'll see in the Gospel of John that Jesus is going to correct their thoughts on all four of those things. But they're asking Paul, are you speaking against Moses and the law? And Paul responds in his strongest possible negative, by no means, may it never even be conceived. May that not even be. Meganoita. It's, it's the fourth time he's used this super strong expression here in chapter 6 and 7. May that not be the case, but what Paul doesn't do is backtrack on what he has been saying thus far. He says, no, sin is, not the pro- or sin is the problem. The law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. But I, what I do want to show you, Paul says, is that the law and sin do have a special relationship. They actually work together. You see, the rabbis, even in the first century BC, would say, more law, more life. We just need more legislation. That'll make everything better. And Paul says something radically different. No, the more law you try to impose, the worse you actually make it. It's not the law's fault. Sin is the problem. It's a bigger problem than you think. Then Paul's going to use an example and an illustration here in verse 7. And for the first time in the book of Romans, Paul's going to shift from either second person plural or third person plural. Now he's going to go first person singular. He says, I, and this has caused centuries and centuries of debate of who Paul is talking about. Is he just talking about himself, 
before conversion? Is he talking about himself after conversion? Is he just talking about I in the general sense, like you would say, one enters the supermarket or one does this, just a, a straw man argument? Or is that actually a complete adventure in missing the point? Yes. It is a complete adventure in missing the point. What Paul is talking about is the law of Moses. And so when he says I, he's placing himself sort of as the personification of the people of Israel. He's representing Israel. It's, it's I, Israel, which is also hearkening back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. When the commandment came, when the bell was rung, God says to Adam and Eve, look at this place. It's amazing. It's got a dog track. It's got green grass, cherry trees. It's got a chocolate waterfall. It's amazing. It's all for you. You're going to take this, make it even bigger, make it even more beautiful. It's all for you. You're going to run around in sinless bodies with nothing else to do. There's no Netflix. It's just the two of you. Go. Oh, but, but don't eat that. The bell was sounded. I am holy. You be holy. That means don't do that. And something inside them said, you're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to. How long did it take them to finally go in the, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds, which is about twice as long as it would have taken me, I'm sure. And so Paul says, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, it's just like what happens to Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 when Moses gives them the law. Paul's not saying here in verse 7, he says that the law... Um, by no means, yet if it had been, if it not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul's not saying that he didn't understand what sin was. What Paul is saying is he didn't understand how profound and how penetrating and how piercing sin is. That the law actually holds up a mirror and says, hey, you think sin is all of these things that you do or don't do? The law is like a mirror. You hold it up and it actually shows you what you actually look like. If you have a mirror like mine, it actually shows me what I look like and I want to break that mirror. That mirror must be evil. It's not the mirror's fault. It's these platinum highlights, do you see? Can't blame the mirror. It's me. That's what the law does. Paul says that the law actually unmasks sin and shows what a colossal and an insidious evil it actually is and that it's not out there. Uh-oh. It's actually in here. It's in me. Paul's going to say sin is not merely missing the mark. Although that is a translation of the Greek term. It's not merely missing the mark. It's that now sin is a transgression. It is a willful rebellion against the bell that has gone out from God. Holy is the standard. That's what I expect of you. If you're going to have right standing before me, it is holiness, perfect purity and perfection in thought, word, and deed. And sin is a much bigger problem than any of us fully recognize. And he uses the example of covetousness. By the way, what is covetousness, coveting? It is wanting anything other than God to bring you joy. How's business? It is wanting anything other than God to satisfy your heart's longing, your, your mind's preferences, relying on anything less than God to satisfy you. That's covetousness. Generally, it means that it's somebody else's. I want his such and such. I want her this and that. So, Paul uses the example of covetousness. Why? Because it is the 10th commandment. 
the first nine of the Ten Commandments are all pretty much don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. They're all actions. But the tenth is an attitude. The tenth commandment is essentially the summary of the first nine. So Paul uses that with intention. The tenth commandment is a summary and a synthesis of the first nine. This is why in the Gospels, when the rich young ruler comes to see Jesus, some people think it might have been Saul of Tarsus. I don't know about that. I don't think so. doesn't matter. Explore yourself. It's called Google. Have fun. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, surprisingly, take a knee, say this prayer after me. No, he doesn't say that. He says, keep all of the commandments. Be holy, because Yahweh is holy. Keep all the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, this I have done from my youth. I've always done that. And Jesus says, (laughs) That's, that's in the Greek. Well, then, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Is this Jesus being a social justice gospel giver? No, of course not. What is Jesus doing? He's hitting him with the 10th commandment. Oh, you've done the first nine. Good, you haven't killed anybody. Good, you've honored your parents. That's great. You haven't made an idol. Good for you. Well done. Now, let's see if you covet. Let's see if you're greedy. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. It's not about the poor. It's about his heart condition. And the man went away sad because the bell had been sounded. And he could not unring the bell. And the text says that Jesus loved him. You know how many times it says in the Gospels that Jesus loved somebody? Well, his disciples certainly, and this guy. Because he understood the bell had been rung and this guy was going to try the rest of his life to unring it, which is why many people believe that this was actually Lazarus. We don't know that for sure either. Ask Rabbi Google. He knows everything. So the law actually gives this articulation, Paul says. It gives this form to that strange sensation that every person has when they really, really want something, anything, and we begin to create ways of figuring out how we can get it. The law says don't, and so we start trying to figure out how we can. That's how big of a problem sin is. It's not the law's fault. Don't blame the ringing of the bell. It's the thing inside of us. Paul says, the law revealed that this dark desire is in me and that it's strong and that it's trying to kill me. Well, we're going to move ahead. Verse 8, Paul says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, the bell has been rung, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, I know this gets a little bit heady, so stick with me. Everyone pretty much agrees. Romans 7 is one of the most challenging passages to really study and understand, so we're going to keep walking through this deal. He says, once the commandment is given, all this is is an elaboration of what he's already said in verse 7. Once the commandment is given, and again, the commandment is good. Sin takes that opportunity and uses it against me to think on it all the more. You've been walking through a park and you've seen the sign, keep off the grass. And I mean, at the molecular level, I'm like, oh, no, you don't. You don't tell me to keep off the grass. I'm me. You ain't the boss of me, little sign. And so there's just something in my fiber that wants to go on the grass. Do not do so. Oh, really? Watch me. I'll give you another example. We did this a few weeks ago, and I got your emails. I got your texts. Thanks for that. Let's play this game. Under no circumstances whatsoever should you think about a tree. Don't do it. Do not think about a tree. Do not think about a tree. Tree, tree. No, no, don't think about a tree. No trees. Oh, they're so barky and brown and floral. And, uh, no. 
You and I don't have the capacity to unthink thoughts. Did you know that? We don't. In fact, when the rule comes along and says don't, it inflames, it, it sort of energizes this bit. And it's not just that sin is inside of me, it makes me think about trees. That would be delightful. It's not it. It's that it makes me think about things that are actually bad for me. The book of Galatians says that my flesh tries to do me damage. Sin is the problem. It's not that the command is the problem. It's not. It's good. It's holy. It's righteous. But sin inside of me does this horrible thing. Now, Paul here in verse 8, he is not saying that sin does not exist apart from the law. Of course, he's not saying that. We know better than that. Clearly, sin raged before Mount Sinai and the giving of the law in Exodus 19. He's saying there is a conduit that it, or a lane that is created for it by the law. Think of it like this, that sin is this massive locomotive with all this power, all this destructive force. That's what sin is. But if there's no tracks in place, it can't get anywhere. The law lays down the tracks, you might say, for sin to come in and do its damage. That's really, really instructive what Paul is saying here. He's saying something significant. He's saying that rules and regulations, not just the law of Moses, but rules and regulations are actually good. That's good. But that because of how bad sin is, they're ultimately used against us. So let me, let me say it this way. External rules actually only produce more internal rebellion. Hear that. External rules actually only produce more internal rebellion. So, should we just adopt total anarchy? No! The commandments are good, but sin is the problem, and it's a really big problem. Paul's going to talk about we should not be anarchists. He'll get to that in Romans chapter 13. And we have to remember when he says here in verse 8 that, that sin apart from the law was dead, he doesn't mean extinct. He doesn't mean that. He means separate. Before the law was given at Sinai, Israel and sin were essentially separated, but of course it existed. But as soon as God said, do not make for yourself an idol, what's the first thing they did? They gave Aaron their earrings and they went down and made an idol. And before you knew it, everyone's naked dancing around livestock. They had never made an idol before, ever. And then God said, don't do this. And they went, <laughs> let's party. Because that's what people are like. That's what you're like. That's what I'm like. And Paul says the commandment is good, but once the bell has rung, you can't unring the bell. It just makes you think about it all the more. The commandment says, Be holy, for I am Yahweh. I am your God. I am holy. Thou shalt not. And you say, Oh, yes, I will. And you do, at least in thought or word, if not ultimately in deed. Well, verse 9 gets a little bit more tricky even still. Verse 9, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I subtitled this in my Bible, Goodbye Forest, Hello Trees. Because this gets pretty precise, pretty technical, pretty geeky and greeky. So just trust me on this. We're going to move through this pretty quickly. It's not worth fracturing fellowship about what Paul means when I was alive, I was dead. Remember, death is separation language. What he's doing is making a point about the relationship between law and sin. Law is actually good. He's not bad-mouthing law, but sin is so bad that it misuses the law actually against us. 
His point was that Israel was alive, meaning that sin was not reckoned against them until the giving of the law. But when the commandment came, the microcosm of the law, the bell was rung, and now what they did was counted as transgression. It stirred everything up in them that had previously not been stirred up, and it made them want to do all of these things even more. That produced an energy in sin it sprang to life it became active and that produced a death between the nation of israel and their god a widening separation it cannot of course mean a cessation of existence or of animation well verse 10 it says the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me Again, this is where I want to pause just for a second and talk about what death means to Paul. It's obviously not that Paul physically died and experienced the separation of body and spirit. That's clearly not what it means. It's much worse. What Paul is referring to is what happened to Israel and by extension him and by extension us. When the law was given to them at Mount Sinai, when the bell is rung, be holy because I am Yahweh your God and I am holy. When the bell was rung at Sinai, It's what happens to every single person that we all need to hear so that we can receive the gospel. When we recognize that rules and regulations and policies and procedures only make me want to break them. When you, perhaps for the first time, get that about yourself. Why do I do the things that I do? I can't tell you how many times I've sat with people who were broken because of bad choices in their relationships and he or she has sat there with his face in his hands going, I don't know what came over me. Why did I do that? It's Romans 7. His problem was not a lack of information. Something happens. Why is it that the rules that I know, I just want to break, recognizing that rules and regulations, policies and procedures, only make me want to break them. That I'm that kind of person. That's my default nature. That's my status. That breaks my heart because the bell has been rung. That's God's standard. But I'm the kind of person that does this. I'm the kind of person that thinks this. I'm the kind of person that feels this way. Makes me come face to face with the wretched reality that I am a depraved person, created in God's image, no question, but helplessly corrupted by the sin that stains me inside and out, and I have no hope within myself whatsoever. I would contend it is a supernaturally given awareness that I, in my default state, am just like the people described in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, before God wipes out the population with the flood. This is how God views the human race. Every single inclination of the thoughts of their heart is evil all the time. Now that's how you and I come out of the wrapper. But nobody wants to think of themselves that way. That's too debilitating. That's too, uh, I have to unring that bell. No, 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 I don't want to hear that. I'm actually a pretty good person. I'm a pretty decent person. I pay my taxes. I don't speed through school zones unless I'm late. I don't cuss unless the cowboys lose. It's just, so I'm a pretty good person. No, 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 no. Every single inclination of the thought of the heart is evil all the time. But it's what Peter was talking about in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching before Pentecost. And he tells Israel, you crucified your own Messiah. You did this to the author of life. And he was good and he was sinless and he was compassionate and he was my friend and I loved him and you killed him. And their reaction, It says they were cut to the heart and they cried out, what must we do to be saved? 
That's what the law does, is it slays you. It slices your heart and makes you cry out for the gospel. That's why we preach passages like this. In other words, when you come to that place, when what you used to think was the basis of your acceptance by God is actually the instrumentality of your rejection by God. Now that's a horrible thing to say. I get it. You have this existential crisis, you might say, and in a sense, you die. Yes, Paul says, the commandment was given unto life, unto blessing, and it was given unto life and blessing to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, so long as they obeyed it completely and perfectly in thought, word, and deed. And they were never going to do that because it's impossible and neither would you and neither would I. And similarly, like us, any rules and regulations or morality and behaviorism that we adhere to will also produce an acceptance before a holy God. It will, provided that you always do it perfectly and purely in thought, word, and deed and never break a single speck of it ever. And that's just not gonna happen. Well, sin is a really, really big deal. Sin is the problem. In verse 11, he continues, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. It's the exact same language he uses in verse eight. It's a military term. For sin, creating a bridgehead. I never made it past Cub Scouts. That's the extent of my military experience. But what I understand is that a bridgehead is what an army will do to get across a divide to accomplish something. That sin actually uses the law to form a bridgehead where sin can come in and destroy me. But it uses the law to do that. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Sin took advantage of the commandment and it used to accomplish further separation between me and God. And that's how sin deceives us. It uses the commandment that promises life and blessing and then it pricks my pride and tries to make me believe that I can actually accomplish it or at least close enough in my own strength. That is a deception of sin and it lives within me. It's not out there, it's in here. And it says, you can do this. You can do at least enough. You know how else sin deceives us, Paul says? Sin always promises lasting joy and happiness. And it has never once in human history, 14 billion people have existed on the face of this earth and sin has promised all of them lasting joy and happiness and it has never delivered not once. The very best sin can deliver is a fleeting, temporal, ephemeral pleasure. Christian, hear me. There is a wide, wide chasm between joy and pleasure. The unregenerate world around you will try to convince you that joy and pleasure are synonymous and they are not. Do not settle for a fleeting pleasure. God loves you. He wants your best more than you can ever imagine. And for you to settle for pleasure breaks his heart. What he wants for you to do is to enjoy this life with the joy of Jesus. But sin is such an insidious, intrinsic evil that it uses God's good command to destroy us from within. Again, all we have to do and all Paul wants us to do is to look at the example of Israel. They believed, and in a sense, they still believe that they can keep the law of Moses or at least keep it relatively close enough. But that's a deception, do you see? Because be holy, for I am Yahweh, your God, and I am holy. The bell does not say, give it the old college try, be goodish, and it'll all work out in the wash. 
You cannot unring the bell. Well, Paul's going to finish up his response to Murray, our imaginary objector. If you remember that Paul's responding to the imaginary objections that he's picked up in all of his arguments in synagogues, perhaps even when he was arguing against Stephen in Jerusalem prior to his own conversion, is the law sin? Absolutely not. He'll finish up here in verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is good because it reveals sin for what it actually is, transgression against God. The law is good, it is righteous, it is holy. See, most people in our world understand that they do some bad stuff or some not awesome stuff from time to time, but unless it's criminal or socially reprehensible, there's not really an appreciation for the error and the offense. It's just, oh, come on, it's not really sin per se, I just messed up or I wasn't as nice or compassionate or giving or caring or thoughtful or loving as I could have been, but that's not really that big of a deal. Bung! Be holy, for I am Yahweh, your God, and I am holy, and you cannot unring the bell. I love how theologian Leon Morris put this. He said, people without God's law do not see wrongdoing as it really is. It takes the law to show wrongdoing to be sin. Not just oops, sin that requires death. The law and its origin are holy. It is from God. It is righteous. It is a snapshot of the character of God. And so it is good, but we can't keep it or do it. And so I love St. Augustine as he summarized this. He said, God commands what we cannot do so that we may know what we ought to seek from Him. Be holy, for I am Yahweh, your God, and I am holy. Be holy. And the recipient of the gospel says, I, I, can't, I can't. I can't unring that bell, and I can't do what you command. Then ask. Then just ask. That's what Augustine says there. So two very quick summary implications from our text here in the middle of Romans 7. Number one goes like this. The law is good. It is good, but it is not best. The law is good, but it is not best. It was given as a means to demonstrate the righteousness of God and to articulate the character of God and the morality of heaven. But sin is the problem, and it's a big problem. And until sin is finally defeated, sin will use those good things to deceive and wound and kill us. That's what's going on in the world. It's not the law's fault, and it certainly isn't God's fault that there are so many problems in the world. Sin is such a big pervasive deal that it takes the good things around us and makes them the dangerous things around us. Paul wants his readers in Rome and us today to see the world around us through the lens of Scripture, to see it the way God sees it. So when we read the news and we hear reports of pain and suffering and evil and abuse in the world, we mustn't assume that devising new laws and policies will solve anything. It's not the answer. Those laws and policies and those rules are good things, but they aren't best. They're certainly not our hope for eradication of evil in our world. No program is. I still continue to hear this. Education is the answer. And for those of you who work in education, God bless you. Thank you for what you're doing. It matters. But that has never transformed a single human soul. 
I think education is marvelous. We need it, certainly, but not unto eternality. Adam and Eve's problem in the garden was not that they didn't have enough information. When I see people step outside of their marriage, it's not that they didn't have enough information. Oh, you mean I was going to rupture the covenant with, covenant with my beloved and cause wreckage in my, gener- in my family for generations to come? I, I, if I had just known that, you, you did know that. Education is great. It's not the answer. So when we encounter all these evils and all these abuses and all these abandonments, sometimes we think, gosh, what's going on? Why won't somebody do something? It's Advent. Somebody has. Point number two, Jesus is the answer. Sin is the problem, and there is only one answer, and his name is Jesus. He's the only, only response to the sin problem. Jesus is the answer. I know that we hear that. We're in church. We get that. We know that. But really, he's the only answer. There really, in our day and age, aren't that many people who are walking around who believe that the law of Moses is actually a pathway unto salvation and sanctification and eternal life. But there are a ton of people walking around you and me, and you may have even shared cranberry sauce with them three days ago, who believe that being good enough is good enough. Or at the very least, being more good than bad or being a little better than most everyone else on social media is enough to merit eternal joy and peace and delight. But that's not what the bell has rung. Be holy because I am Yahweh your God and I am holy. That's the gong of the bell. So as the Puritans used to say, and I love this, that the preaching of the holiness of God through the law slays men to prepare them for life in the gospel. That's why we talk about the holiness of God, and that is his expectation, and we say, I can't can't ever do that. Right. So ask. It's humbling to yield and to submit, but all we have to do is to ask. Paul's point here is absolutely unique on the stage of world religions. He's telling us that all of the rules and all the social constraints imposed by people throughout human history, including the Mosaic Law, actually only serve to stir us up and arouse our indwelling sin issues. If a rule tells us not to, we want to. Those of you with children, this is where you amen. Now, please think on that for just a minute because this should actually have an immense and an immediate impact on just about every aspect of our life. I've mentioned parents. It should dramatically change how we parent. Our default cultural and social approach to parenting is to impose law, to impose restriction and rule, and to threaten the fear of consequence. How's that working out for us? If your kids are anything like my parents' kids, we just get super creative in figuring out ways to break your rules. Tell me that I can't have that, watch me. Tell me that I can't do that, watch me. I'll do it twice, I'll use the microwave next time. You're not gonna bind me and restrict me. I'm gonna figure it out. But instead, rather than trying to impose rule and restriction, policy and procedure on these little lives that have been created in the image of God, what if we took the crown that King Jesus hands to us, asks us to steward in our household, and we hold it over their heads and we say, it's not about a rule, it's about him. Look at Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let's sit down tonight awkwardly. I know we don't do this as a family, but we're gonna sit down and we're gonna read this Advent devotional beginning this year, and I wanna point you to Jesus. Just look at him. 
Because if you're more in love with him, little seven-year-old, I don't have to give you 27 bullet points of why you should and should not do this and that. Look at Jesus. Do you see what he's like? Do you see how he treated children? Do you see how he engaged with people who were the unsavories of society? Man, I love that guy. He was God, but he tasted our sadness. I love that guy. Let's love him. And then the Spirit of God will take that little life and raise them up to fit the crown that we hold over their heads. Please do not merely impose law and rule and consequence on your children. How about in the marriage context for those of you who are married? If you are still living according to a set of expectations and strictures on your spouse, watch as your husband bucks. I don't want you to do that, honey. Watch as he figures out new and creative ways to do it. If you, gentlemen, are trying to impose expectations and strictures on your wives, watch as they buck that. They're not going to want to do that. But instead, if you begin to see your role in the home as both of you are royal priests of God Most High, what is the role of the priest? To point people to the sacrifice. Look at Jesus. Look what he's like. Look what he did. Look how he loves you. And I get to wash you with the word. Ephesians 5, and she gets to support him like the Spirit of God. And when she sees him acting all kinds of thick skulled, this is hypothetical, she gets to say like the voice of the Holy Spirit, hey, you're an idiot. And I hear that and I receive that. Rather than imposing strictures, we point to Jesus. Let's get it a little bit more broad. Let's talk about in your workplace. If you're simply trying to adhere to the black letters on a white page of some employee handbook and you're wondering why your job is a bore, you make copies as if you're making copies for Jesus. You, you, you pump that gas like you're pumping Jesus' gas. You have to have that thought, not trying to adhere to a bunch of rules and regulations. You will never thrive. You will never have joy. Instead, the gong has been rung. We say this all the time. He is the answer. The human problem requires a divine solution. Won't somebody do something? He has. Jesus is the answer. The solution is God himself and the person of Jesus Christ. It is not a set of rules. I love how John Calvin summarized this. He said, In the precepts of the law, God is but the rewarder of perfect righteousness, which all of us lack, and conversely, the severe judge of evil deeds. That's horrible news if that's where the story ends. But he continues, but in Christ, his face shines full of grace and gentleness, even upon us poor and unworthy sinners. You see, the wages of sin is death. That's what the law prescribes and requires. And Jesus paid it all. The demand of the law, be holy, for I am Yahweh and I am holy requires perfection, complete righteousness and holiness in every thought and word and deed, and Jesus accomplished it. So no, we can't unring the bell. Nor do we need to, because Christ has fulfilled the ringing of that bell and has passed on the life he earned to us freely as a gift. Be holy! For I am Yahweh, I am God, I am holy. This Advent, each time you hear the bell, you can be reminded that you are fully holy, accepted in Christ. And he could not love you more and requires nothing else of you. 
but to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as a result, love your neighbor as yourself. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.